The deal President Obama cut with Iran's rulers provided them with billions of dollars and a patient pathway to the acquisition of nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them to targets anywhere on the planet. President Trump withdrew from that deal and, in its place, initiated a maximum pressure campaign of economic sanctions intended to change the regime's behavior, if not change the regime. Rich Goldberg, who recently served as a director on the National Security Council and is now back at FDD as a senior advisor, is with us to talk about what the Trump administration's policies and strategies have and have not achieved so far. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're listening here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Let's start talking about your role. Tell us what you started, what you worked on, what you did, how that changed over the time that you were there. Yeah, so I was brought in as the director for countering Iranian weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and so I worked in the counterproliferation directorate uh, at the time, uh, senior director uh, Tim Morrison and then uh, a former FDD uh, alum as well, uh, now a senior director Anthony Ruggiero. And so uh, that directorate uh, covers the entire world as far as proliferation concerns, uh, both nuclear, missile, chem, bio – uh, conventional arms transfers, and then pandemics uh, like we're dealing with right now, all all in this one very important functional directorate. And depending on the area of the world that you're working on, you work with these regional directorates uh, very closely. And so for Iran, uh, we would work obviously with the Mideast directorate and their Iran team. And it's our job to implement a post-Iran deal, post-JCPOA strategy uh, that uh, coordinates maximum pressure on Iran, uh, uses every economic, financial, other type pressure we can find to put more pressure on the Islamic Republic with the ultimate goal, the president's direction to achieve some sort of end state uh, where Iran agrees to totally denuclearize, give up its nuclear missile capabilities, uh, that they decide to uh, abandon uh, their path of sponsorship of terrorism, proliferation throughout the region, fomenting wars and conflicts, release all American hostages, uh, and actually behave like a normal nation. And in return, uh, we would provide Iran with what we would consider normal relations, both diplomatically and economically. And if you had to, or if, I guess you do, if to appraise the success of the policy to date, how would you? What would you say? Right now, I would say we're about at an A minus. Uh, so, in terms I, of maximum pressure, in terms of how much in, pressure in, we're in terms exerting. of the overall strategy yeah. and and maximum pressure, um, others might go lower. Uh, I have to make myself look good in my, in my year on the job, so I'll I'll, I'll stick with A minus. Uh, so there's, there's still room for improvement uh, in advocacy. Uh, but uh, there are places where you can exert more pressure. Uh, but also, uh, one of the reasons why I give an A minus and not an A is the Iran deal still exists. Yeah. 
Uh, we got out of the deal. America's not participating in the deal, but the deal lives on without us. And the longer it lives on, the closer we get to these dreaded sunset provisions uh, that start this October. Right. 16 days before the presidential election, actually, the arms embargo on Iran is scheduled to lift unless we actually end the deal. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, has made no concessions um, as a result of the maximum pressure campaign, whatever level, so far. Now, of course, that uh, that doesn't mean we'd be better off sending boatloads or aircraft filled with money over to them as I think we were in the previous administration, the hope to buy or at least rent uh, their acquiescence for a time. And as you say, the sunset provisions, the restrictions on, on the Islamic Republic of Iran begin to disappear as of this year, it's really quite quite remarkable. And at the end of the day, if they have not done what we want, which is to nu- nuclearize, I don't think people realize this because President Obama said, no, I've stopped them from getting nuclear weapons. They act in, in truth with the sunset provisions. Eventually, uh, the, they get the key to the nuclear weapons club like anybody else. All that's correct, right? All that's correct. All that's correct. Patient pathways to nuclear weapons, as Mark Dubowitz likes to say. Which a lot of people don't seem to, to this day, just seem to understand. They still think the JCPOA stopped rather than simply delayed, not for a terribly long time, this regime's access to nuclear weapons and the, and, and the ability to deliver them anywhere on the, anywhere on the planet, actually. I suppose that what Obama was thinking of is that this regime, once it has more money, once it has a, it sees how wonderful it is to have good relations with the U.S., it'll moderate, it'll mellow, it'll liberalize. I'm sure Khamenei will think less about um, taking over the Middle East, uh, destroying Israel, um, death to America, and more about 401k plans and the best darn healthcare system in the Middle East, North African region. I mean. I mean, my, am I being, am I wrong in, in, in suggesting that was his theory? No, I think that that's right. I, I, I've only heard two different theories uh, presented of, of why the Iran deal was good from the Obama administration's perspective. Uh, the first one, and these are all sort of what they'll say in private. Uh, the true believers believe exactly what you just said, and that is this is the first step in really normalizing, thawing our relations. Uh, Iran doesn't actually want to use nuclear weapons. They just want the threat of nuclear weapons uh, for their leverage. Uh, Iran needs all these missiles because of the trauma they went through in the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, all the regime talking points they believe. Uh, and that if we just recognize that Sunni Islam is really our enemy and, and Sunni radicalism is what we need to be at war with and that the Shia radicalism of Iran is is just politics by other means. Uh, they're just trying to express themselves and their grievances. And if we join forces, we could really roll back ISIS and al-Qaeda and remake the Middle East in our in our favor. And Israel just kind of gets in the way and they they spark all these controversies and they claim it's a threat. It's not a threat. The Israelis know it's not a threat. They're just looking for ways to increase their security budget and dependency on America. 
So let, let's ignore that, right? So that that's the sort of the true believer, far mm-hmm. left narrative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is all America's fault. It goes back to 1953, right? You've heard right. it all. Right, 1953, because there was the, the Mossadegh was brought down by in a coup and the U.S. had some hand in it, probably not as much as people think. It wasn't like the CIA brought – anyhow, we won't yeah. go into all yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But the idea is they have grievances. They have legitimate grievances. Yes. If we address their legitimate grievances, they'll be our friends. And and as you say, Shia jihadism is very different from Sunni jihadism, why I don't really understand. Hezbollah is a terrorist group, but people don't. And yeah, working. I mean, listen, they just need breathing room. We, never, we, ne- we never heard that before. Uh, uh, the, the, <laughs> the alternative view, right, they would say, yeah, we get it. It's not a great deal, but we just need to buy some time to see if the Supreme Leader will die in the interim and then see what happens next. Right. We just, we're just kicking the can. And we're buying ourselves some time. Right. Kicking the can. Which can, which, listen, that can be useful. Snow, at a certain point, snow melts. Maybe you didn't need to shovel. That's a possibility. Although the idea that Ali Khamenei, who is the supreme leader, only the second supreme leader uh, for the over 40 years that this regime has been in power. Um, and he's, he's not a young man. He's not in great health. The idea that he is going to be uh, replaced, his, that his successor will be uh, much more liberal than he is and, again, be somebody who cares about uh, good health care and good retirements and more chicken in every pot. It just seems to me that's a, the odds are not good that that's going to happen because he's not picked by the, the people of, of, of Iran at, on the whole. People think that because they have elections sometimes, these are free and fair elections and people express, but they're not. These are very guided. These are elections guided by the ruling class, which is also the religious class. And people don't get that. And of course, the, and, and the military class, I guess, as well. That's right. And don't forget sanctions relief, which basically is an appeasement policy of paying the Islamic Republic not to do something we don't like, uh, which is in Chicago what we would just call a racket, uh, <laughs> is is ultimately going to fund the, the police state right. and the control system of the people. And when you walk away from the people, uh, even when they're dying in the streets protesting and you say, listen, we're with the mullahs on this one. They promised us they just won't build a, a nuke for a few years. Uh, what what is there ever any hope for reform in coming days when you're when you're totally aligned and funding the security or apparatus that keeps the people down? I mean, it seems to me that if you understand that this is a nefarious regime um, that is implacably hostile to the United States, that the whole idea of the Islamic Revolution, which continues to this day, is hostility towards the United States, diminishing American power. Establishing the Islamic Republic as the hegemon of the Middle East, really an imperialist policy. They pretty much control Lebanon at this point. They pretty much control Syria at this point. They're bidding fair to control Iraq at this point. They're, they've got the Houthi rebels trying to take over Yemen at this point. All of that. You, the least you want to do is not give them an additional funds with which to achieve their ends. Uh, you know, the old saying that when the, when it comes time to kill the capitalists, they'll sell us the rope. At least sell it to them. Don't give it to them or finance their, their acquisition of the rope. So all that's good. That said, I think it's a fair question to say, okay, I see you've got this maximum pressure policy. They haven't responded to it yet. Uh, what's the end state you see? Do you really think they're going to come to the table and give up their, uh, and, and give up their revolutionary goals? Is that really possible? Do you want regime change? I know the administration says it doesn't, but I don't think it would cry salty tears for that to happen. Talk a little bit about the end state you see. What happens if maximum pressure works and say the, the regime runs out of money, economically implodes, then what? 
Well, first of all, we'll just start by saying I agree with everything you just said originally, and that is as a starting point, it is a win for American foreign policy and national security to starve the regime of funds. Uh, if they have less funds for their terror proxies, uh, for their missile program, for their nuclear program, for all the malign activities, it's a better day for America. Uh, but you're right. Uh, there has to be sort of a way forward and a strategy here. Uh, and ultimately, uh, this is a regime that wants to be in power. And there's one constant in totalitarian regimes is that they try to maintain their regime being in power. And so uh, if there were actually a threat to the regime's existence, if they perceived that the economy was on the verge of collapse, that they would not be able to control certain things, they would have to start adapting their behavior uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. That would start with budget changes, uh, funding decreases for various activities, perhaps withdrawal of forces from areas of the region, a retreat to within their borders to, to a more controllable uh, way of, of operating uh, in the Middle East. Right now, you could argue they're, they're fairly overstretched. Uh, they're sort of like a, a big real estate uh, mongol who's who's bought up everything and the market's about to collapse <laughs> and it's all about to be worthless. Uh, and so it's actually a, a very critical moment where we could be at a tipping point for uh, Islamic Republic decision making. The question then for them is, can we hold off on this decision until the presidential election? And I think – that we they've probably made the determination that they can, that the bottom won't fall out until after the presidential election. Uh, it's very tenuous. They've made some very painful uh, decisions already. We saw the riots break out after the gasoline decision. Uh, there are others they're going to have to make to keep the payments going uh, to the pensioners and to the banks and others. Uh, and so uh, the question then for them is, does Donald Trump remain president? Do you have a president who comes in next January who goes right back into the deal, sunsets, sunsets and all, uh, gives us right back our sanctions relief? Uh, and so – I think that's the waiting game we're in right now. Right. And in the meantime, uh, it is bad. It's getting worse for them. The Trump administration knows they're playing that game, keeps adding more pressure and looking for ways to squeeze. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're in a game of chicken right now. Right. And, and they're holding uh, – they, they want to hold out to after the election. And I fear that they're being advised to do that poss possibly by some of our European allies who I think should not be doing that. But the, but I think uh, maybe and maybe even by some Americans I think that there's a possibility of saying hold out. You'll get a better deal after if there's a President Sanders or a President Biden or whatever. Oh, there's no question about yeah. that. We know that was happening, bef you know, before early on in the maximum pressure campaign. Uh, the the president has not been shy about tweeting about John Kerry and and others uh, meeting and talking to Iranian officials. We've seen the the phone calls, uh, you know, on display between the Iranian foreign minister, uh, in person meetings now as well with members of Congress. Obviously, he does interviews. There, there's an active influence campaign that goes both ways. Uh, to coordinate policy behind the scenes uh, between some uh, in the U.S. and with the Islamic Republic. But ultimately, I think they have to hedge uh, and assume that it's possible the president gets reelected and they have to prepare for what they're going to do uh, in that scenario if they can't hold on, if the maximum pressure campaign continues. The president's res restoration of deterrence uh, with the Soleimani strike, uh, with showing the Islamic Republic he's willing to use force uh, if they attack the United States, uh, also further puts them in a box where they can't continue to use their proxy forces and potentially kill Americans 
uh, as a political tool to undermine the president back at home because they actually now have to take into account the possibility that that will end their own regime by military force. Uh, and so they're in a box. Um, they use all kinds of tools to get out of it, nuclear escalation, uh, all these different terror attacks uh, through proxies on our allies, uh, try to attack oil, see if they can't spike the price of oil. Nothing has really worked for them. Uh, they are much worse off today than they were when the president uh, took office. And so they are hoping against hopes that the Iran deal doesn't end. They get to keep their sunsets. They get to start uh, buying, importing uh, conventional arms from Russia and China. They stay on path for a UN-sanctioned pathway to nuclear weapons. Uh, and that there's a different president who brings back sanctions relief. That's their hope. Dig a little bit deeper into the killing of Qasem Soleimani. We mentioned that there's the religious ruling class in the in the country for forty years. That's that's that is the system. The the the, the, the imams, not all imams, only some of the imams, the Khomeiniist imams, they rule the country. Um, but hand in glove with the military, Qasem Soleimani, who was the head of the Quds Force, which is the expeditionary um, force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. Um, he he's he was the military leader. I, from all I think we know, he was very close with Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. We saw Ali Khamenei cry at his funeral. You don't see. I don't know. I don't think in all the years I followed him, thirty years, I've seen him cry before on that. Um, now there are those, of course, in Congress who are saying we're not going to let the U.S. do uh, for, that. We're not going to let Trump do something like that again. That hasn't succeeded, but there has been an effort. Also, I think you'd agree killing Qasem Soleimani, somebody who is responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people in Syria, Americans and others, somebody who I do not believe was in Iraq at that point to have dinner and, and a movie with a friend. I think he, we had been attacked at our embassy. We had been attacked at bases. But President Obama would not have done that. I don't think President Bush would have done that. I'm not sure any other president, but this president would have said, yeah, go ahead. Let's take this guy out. He's really he's, – he's, he's, He's guilty of a lot of crimes. Uh, he poses a threat to us. I want to show them that we're not a paper tiger. Oh, we're going to do that. Talk just for a second about how this changes the their, how this changes their calculus. This changes the equation. Assuming it does. Assuming it's not seen as a, just a, a one off. Well, I think that's exactly right. And if you think about the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. All three administrations had a stated policy of trying to negotiate with the Iranians to get them to give up their nuclear ambitions. The Bush administration did that in various venues for years, uh, did not work out well. The Obama administration obviously did that, uh, tried to, then it did it in quiet. And then obviously the Iran deal was a horrible mistake. Uh, and the Trump administration says that their policy is to negotiate as well. And uh, the Iranians claim they've had outreach multiple times of you know, President Trump wanting to talk. And so, you know, one, one of the questions then is uh, when you're in this posture of wanting to negotiate and you're trying to get a deal, all your advisors are going to say, don't do anything too hostile. Don't do anything too provocative. It's going to ruin our chance to get the negotiation going. It's going to ruin our chance. And it, you, you have to imagine that's a big piece of what was said to President Bush when the opportunity presented itself. That's obviously what had to have been in uh, President Obama's thinking. Uh, in trying to get a deal going and ultimately the JCPOA. And the fact that the, the Trump administration and President Trump himself says, you know what, I think they're more likely to negotiate with me if they see that I'm not going to take it and that I'm not going to let this terrorist run around 
and threaten Americans. I'll negotiate with them, but if they try to kill us, they're dead first. I mean, what a powerful message when you're dealing with an authoritarian, totalitarian, radical regime like this. And it, it's just a sign, you know, everybody ridicules the president. Oh, he likes authoritarian leaders. Oh, he really, you know, cozies up to them. No, I actually think he just understands how they operate. And he, and he tries to demonstrate American strength in response to gain respect. And I don't think you gain respect by sending love letters to the supreme leader. I think you gain respect by saying, we are America, we have might, and we will make right if you, if you make us. So in the few minutes we have remaining, Rich, what else should we be doing? What else would you be – would you now advise the president to do? Uh, this problem is still very much out there. He has – he may have limited time. He may have another four years. What else should we be doing? Well, I would say set yourself up for success uh, in a second term uh, to make sure that you get the negotiation you want uh, on your terms uh, or possibly even get it before uh, election day uh, if, if the maximum pressure uh, gets to them uh, before that. And then also protect our national security just in case there's actually somebody who comes in uh, who says, I want to go right back into the deal, no preconditions, give them everything they want. Uh, that would be a disaster, obviously, for American national security. How do you do that? Well, first of all, let's continue to take maximum pressure to attend. There are additional sanctions we can impose right now to get there. You know, the entirety of Iran's financial sector is actually not subject to sanctions. It's an amazing thing. People are people know famously about our financial warfare and our banking sanctions and how effective they are, the central bank of Iran sanctions. But we continue to use a policy of the scalpel in these cases where we only impose sanctions on individual banks, not on the sector as a whole, which leaves a whole lot of banks open for business uh, and potentially for abuse uh, to certainly an undermining of the maximum pressure campaign if your policy is economic pressure. And so to impose sanctions on the entirety of the financial sector of Iran would disconnect all the remaining banks from the swift international banking system, would lock down all of Iran's remaining overseas accounts that might still be available for quote-unquote legitimate trade, and would really take the pressure up to the next level. Uh, also imposing sanctions on the Tehran Stock Exchange would be an incredible message. A lot of the supreme leaders' businesses are being listed on that exchange. A lot of companies that are involved in missiles uh, and other uh, terror activities are listed on that exchange. We've already hit the National Development Fund of Iran, uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund with sanctions. We should do the same for the Tehran Stock Exchange as well. More strategically speaking, we need to delegitimize and finally dismantle the Iran nuclear deal. We haven't done that. And, you know, the president four years ago went to APAC and in his speech, he said, my number one priority will be to dismantle the nuclear deal. Now is the time to do that. How do you do that? Well, the nuclear deal legitimized Iran's illicit nuclear infrastructure. It let them whitewash all of their past work that they've never accounted for on nuclear weapons, all of their different programs that are obviously capabilities to have in waiting if they want to pursue nuclear weapons in the future, and allowed them to keep their capabilities intact, and then also endorsed international support for that program to further legitimize it. These are the so-called nuclear waivers that you hear about, these international support programs to allow Russia, Europe to come on in and say, yeah, this is a perfectly peaceful program. We absolutely want you to have peaceful nuclear energy. We're going to help you in all these different ways. 
And then, of course, the nuclear deal is enshrined by a Security Council resolution that locks in all of the sunsets we've talked about. It's not just in the piece of paper JCPOA. They're in the Security Council resolution. Kill the nuclear waivers. Delegitimize Iran's nuclear program in its entirety and make them fully account for all of their past activities before they get a screwdriver related to a nuclear energy program. And then at the same time, go to the Security Council, use your right under the resolution to snap back all international sanctions on Iran, end the deal, collapse it, make Iran have to negotiate a new one with whoever is president after November. Sounds like a plan. Rich Goldberg, thank you for your service on the National Security Council. Thank you, too, as I know, for your service in the U.S. military. And we're thrilled also to have you back here at FDD working on all these issues. Um, And we'll have you also on this program again. So thanks again for being here today. And thanks to all of you listening today. You're here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Policy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening... Foreign policy.